Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I'm also the Public Relations Officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guest is Philip Felsch, author of the book, The Summer of Theory, History of a Rebellion, 1960 to 1990, published by Polity in 2021, but it was originally published in German in 2015. It's out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, Philip. Hi. Yes, it's, it's great to have you here, and you're joining us from Berlin. Exactly. All right. What's the weather like over there? It's uh, very hot here. We're becoming used to very hot summers lately. Uh, climbs to 35 degrees Celsius, which is not common or didn't used to be common, especially not in the time that the book is about. Right, um, right. Yes, well, I'm, I'm, and, and I'm uh, joining from the Caribbean, so we're used to that temperature, but I understand it is unusual for you. <laughs> All right, so, that, um, so let's start off our conversation. If, if you can just, I, I, I usually like to start off by asking, you know, our authors, if you could please let our audience know a little bit of your background, you know, and then, and particularly in relation to the subject of your book. Yeah. Um, I'm currently teaching intellectual history at uh, the Berlin University, and I'm I was I'm 50 years old, more or less. I turned 50 in December. I was born in 72, so I I'm let's say um, I'm a child of the 90s when it comes to academic and intellectual. Uh, maturing and growing up and in the 90s I uh, was obsessed with uh, theory and theory in the 90s meant mainly French theory so we uh, read all the French famous authors I'm sure we will get back to these names Um, and uh, 
like a particular set of authors of ideas of thought styles was formative for me in these years in my own intellectual development and then um, later let's say after the turn of the millennium somehow i mean i'm 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 more of a historian actually than a philosopher by training so maybe also due to that after the turn of the millennium um theory and the whole feeling of theory the obsession the excitement uh, moved a bit a little bit into the background and i was becoming more interested in, in, in concrete historical subjects until yeah, 20 years later more or less i rediscovered these books that i had filled with ecstatic pencil marks in the 90s from foucault derrida or deleuze and somehow from the historical distance, I became interested in exactly this kind of obsession, this kind of excitement that these books had aroused um, 20 years earlier, not only in myself, but I think also in the readership of a whole generation in Germany and not only in Germany. And um, so and then I, by chance, came across the history of the little publishing house that was formative for me and for my generational peers in these years. It's called Merve. Um, and it was one of these publishing houses that I think have exist around, existed around the world um, at some point in the post-year decades, be it the 60s or the 80s or the 90s, like these little theory publishers and books that you could carry around in the subway or at the beach or wherever you were to read difficult authors of theory in a non or at most half academic setting. Um, and uh, Nava was maybe the most famous of these publishers had been in West Germany. Um, the heyday of this publishing house was between the 60s and the, the 90s, I would say. I was among the last generation that really got into the spell or under the spell. So I set out to write the history of this publishing house, which at first seems to be a little marginal, one must say, uh, a, a book devoted to the history of one small publishing house in West Berlin. Um, but of course, it's the attempt to write the history of a whole movement of a feeling of, of, of an excitement that I think is characteristic for the post 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 war decades. Um, definitely in the Western world, but maybe not only there. So, um, and as I was writing this history, this story, of course, I was writing the history of my own formative um, education through and with theory uh, in the 90s and after well that's fascinating and and i mean uh i you know coming from a, a very different geographical location uh there's so much i i empathize with and, and sympathize with I, I i'm just you know a few years older than you like um, i'm 53 and and yeah i mean in the 90s i was all into all types of of theory and stuff um the post-structuralist, the post-modernist, etc., and yeah, and I mean, I remember, you know, it, it was it was an exciting time after the collapse of the Berlin Wall and sort of the emergence of this newer phase of globalization and 
and you know and 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 yeah and things were going on i mean i i was going f- forth between the sort of atlantic world between like sort of england and canada uk the caribbean and it was just very very uh fascinating stuff and yeah I, and i think that a lot of the the things that you um talk about in the book which i personally am not that familiar with um the german left but but it it just feels you know you know so familiar in in some ways so i think that's um i i think that it, it definitely um will resonate with so many people because i think you know the, the experience you know has its parallels in so many other locations yeah i'm so sure I'm, it has mm-hmm. i'm sure yeah do you, you want to comment uh, on that a, a little more not really of course i would be i would have many questions to you as well you know i would love to hear the parallel story in your uh, uh history but that's maybe not our main yeah. purpose here <laughs> so correct, correct. No, go, ahead, go ahead yeah so so well i mean in as you say and it's very interesting you know you you are calling you you, you teach intellectual history but but you but you are this book is more of a historical examination rather than a theoretical um you know examination and in your book you have a sentence here which states the purpose it says this book recounts the formative experience of now i'm hoping i'm pronouncing his name right peter hente peter gente Gente, Gente, yeah. right, yeah. Peter Gente, okay. the uh, Odyssey of, and now I got this name totally wrong when I read it, Total Merva Collection. Yeah, not so bad, yeah. yeah. All right, good, Merva Collection, and the discoveries of uh, uh, Gente and Paris. So, yeah, yeah, so for those readers not familiar, which includes myself, so what is the the significance of Peter Gente, Paris, and the Merva Collection? Okay, first of all, I need to clarify one thing mm-hmm. for our listeners. Um, Paris in this connection is a bit misleading because it's not, it doesn't refer to Paris, although right. Paris plays a very significant role in this book yeah, because we're yeah, talking yeah. about all these authors <laughs> from Paris that came in translation to West Germany. Paris, or um, Paris as she was would be pronounced in German, was uh, Peter Gentis' uh, uh, fiancé, uh, Heidi Paris, um, by now deceased, they're both deceased by now, and this couple uh, was responsible for, yeah, 30 years at least for this small publishing house Merve that the book is about. Well, um, I, 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 I alluded to this already a little bit uh, when I talked about myself, why write um, in history of uh, this little publishing collective that was in the end run by some more or less obscure couple by now. Why even bother to spend so much time to writing this history? Well, because I think it's really representative of small publishing houses devoted to theory since the 60s. I think we could even talk about a red Gutenberg galaxy, you know, that evolved around the globe in a way in these post-year years um there has been talk about the about western marxism for example um which uh also has been criticized by perry anderson the 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 english the english marxist critic because he said the western marxists in the end they gave up the political struggle and in a way disappeared into their universe of text and reading 
um, like a very inter a, a very intellectual uh, or maybe over intellectual version of being left. That seems to be very typical um, for the post-war left and also post-modern experience of many intellectuals in many different countries. And a part of it are these small publishing houses. Now, Gente and Paris, this couple, um, they were especially interesting for me because the, 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 the records that I found on paper of 30 or 40 years of, of, of running this publishing house reveal that it was not run as a completely professional editorial um, operation, let's say, but it, they were fans, you know, they were readers themselves of, of the books they made. They traveled to Paris to talk to all these famous French authors, Foucault um, and the other ones. Um, so the records of their experience uh, over a whole generation of reading theory and publishing theory seemed to be especially representative and for all the theory readers, including myself, that had uh, 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 you know seen the light of theory in, in, in these years. So that's why I, again, why I focused on their stories um, in order to tell the story not only of one but of several generations uh, of theory readers. Because um, my story starts in the early 50s, post-war Western Germany. Um, and it spans, it, 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 it reaches until the late 80s, early 90s. I could have also continued it. I should have continued it. Now I would definitely continue it. I guess we'll come back to this point and also cover the 90s and maybe whatever happened after. But Marvelous Publishing House was flourishing mainly between the 60s and the 90s. And in this trajectory, um, theory, as it was called, let's say with a, with a, with a capital T, you know, uh, not a theory, a, a theory of something, but just theory. And everybody knew what was meant by that. Uh, and we still do. But whatever theory was changed during these decades uh, a lot. So theory was in the early 50s in West Germany, mainly synonymous with the Frankfurt School. They were all became readers of Adorno, who, uh, who just had returned from exile in the United States and was publishing his famous books in German and became, let's say, the, the mastermind of a whole generation of the student movement. So theory was Frankfurt School. Then these readers, as is well known in the late 60s, complained to their master Adorno, who was you know, engaged in this endless theoretical reflection, um, almost like a meditation, and his students complained about political action. So what should we actually do? So they moved on into more traditional, more orthodox Marxism, and then they discovered Hegel. And that, all, all of this under the heading of theory with a capital T, and then, of course, in the late 70s and the 80s, the occurred the big shift towards the French, the postmodern authors who uh, opened like new roads to be interested in theory and read theory and engage with theory. And under the roof of this little publishing house, I was trying to tell all these different phases and chapters of what theory actually was in these decades. The thing that connects these different schools of thought from the Frankfurt School to uh, uh, systems theory of, of Luhmann, let's say, in, 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 in the 90s. I'm, I, I'm not sure if you're also familiar with him. Uh, he, 
actually less familiar with. Uh, the others, obviously, I... Yeah, I, he was, of, of course, also uh, like a big thing, definitely in Germany uh, in the 90s, uh, um, a, a theory that was just describing the complexities of the world without any option for actual political change, definitely not by any individual subject. Um, so um, what connects all these different schools of thought... It's just the belief that studying and reading and discussing and publishing theory itself is already the first step towards some kind of deep social change. Right, right, right. So now in, in, in terms of the story you outline, um, could you just sort of uh, briefly... Um, you know, just tell the readers what it is and, and maybe um, tell us maybe what you, you think are your favorite or your most interesting parts of, of this uh, journey, this history, this story. Um, definitely very interesting for me in order also to st understand my own, mm, my own uh, biographical experience of reading theory. Um, as maybe previous generations, uh, uh, let's say until the early 20th century, had read poetry. Yeah? Um, also, definitely not only with an academic or political purpose, but also with, with aesthetic pleasure, I would claim. Uh, theory was definitely also connected to that. Um, um, in order to understand this particular pleasure of theory that I had experienced myself in the 90s, it was very interesting for me to go back to the to the 50s and early 60s when uh, the post-war German New Left discovered the Frankfurt School, the writings of Adorno and, and Walter Benjamin, uh, most of all, um, to understand what the fascination, the specific fascinations of these texts was, and an experience that you that you stumble upon again and again as you read documents by these readers of theory was that these texts were so difficult, they basically at least at first couldn't understand anything. And that was exactly the fascination of this new genre of theory, the difficulty of it, um, the hermetic kind of writing and I, I guess that's 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 true for all of these authors i mean benjamin is, is extremely difficult to read Walter Benjamin. And also if you read the german original i guess it doesn't get much easier in, in, in translation <laughs> although sometimes english almost seems easier to read than, than, than the german language even some translations um and i think it's very uh, uh, in the end, this fascination with difficult texts who don't give themselves away to a first glance or even a first reading. By the way, something that we have, I think, completely lost um, in our genera in, in, in our uh, contemporary times. Difficult texts are very quickly dismissed of being too academic, of in, in the end maybe also being some kind of bullshit. The question why can't we say that easier is something that is very, very quickly raised, contemporary. Whereas you can see in the 60s, there was a specific fascination of stuff that was difficult. I mean, we can also see it in, in, in other realms of culture. Of course, now I'm, I'm, I'm talking mainly about the West German experience, but I guess it's also, if we look, for example, into film, um, I mean, if, 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 you, if, you, if you look into the big European film festivals of the time, whatever, Cannes, Venice, 
films that won major awards at the time, by the way, by, for example, the films of Alexander Kluge, I don't know if you ever stumbled on his name. He's also, let's say he, he was the, he was a cine, cinematographic wing of the Frankfurt School. He made these super difficult essay films, like half fiction, half nonfiction. And he won with one of them, I think Venice in 1968. The film by now is really only something for movie buffs, you know, that you could win a major festival. It's such a hermetic, difficult film. Avant-garde, aesthetic, uh, that is something that I find fascinating. And that, of course, is, is, was a fact that the, the, the genre of theory lived off this fascination to get into something that you couldn't understand at first glance, which I have myself. That, you, you mentioned the culture. That's interesting. Um, I, you, you have some references to uh, David Bowie and, and Iggy Pop. <laughs> and I know they had their the, um, German phase uh, in the um, 70s at one point. That, that caught my eye, I remember, in going through your book. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's... that's, that's um, David Bowie, uh, 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 of course, was 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 like a cultural icon here in West Berlin in the late seventies. Um, the, the the people that I'm writing about went to the same bars, you know, and hung out with Bowie, who was very around in West Berlin during these I don't know three or four years that he stayed here and recorded three wonderful albums, um, um, and. They frequented the same bars and clubs. Um, the thing is, uh, I didn't try, I haven't written the history of theory as, let's say, a traditional intellectual history. I mean, we have tons of them just recounting uh, the major or central thoughts and paradigms from the Frankfurt School to uh, post-structuralism. But my interest was more to answer the, the question, what do we actually what do we actually do when we do theory? I don't even know if you can translate it. In German, you can really say Theorie machen, like to do theory, you know. And that doesn't mean to produce it, but to just read it and discuss it and kind of live it. And so I was interested in theory not only as a set of ideas, but also as a practice, uh, a lifestyle icon, we can also say, you know, people carry these books around, people had them on their shelves, of course, also as markers of distinction, that you have read all of this stuff. Um, and that's why Bowie comes, so theory also became part of pop culture, right, uh, to, to, to be a certain kind of intellectual young person, and that's why the connection to Bowie uh, was, 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 was important the time did you, do you think perry anderson's um critique of of western marxism was essentially um correct in terms of that you know western marxism basically it you know it um abandoned the working class and, and perhaps the nature of these texts being so aesthetic being so difficult to read and and many of them like i, I think it was lerman with the um systems theory you know and foucault definitely uh at, at in in parts of his theory you know to almost talking about the impossibility of action at all um and do, do you think uh, that his analysis was right and and did do you think this showed up at all in the uh, life and history of Gente and uh, Paris? 
I mean, I, I definitely think that his uh, Perry Anderson's analysis was right. Uh, the Frankfurt School is a very, very elitist project in the end. Um, um, to not act politically because every action is immediately somehow part of the status quo, which you can only which you, which you can only surpass by a certain way of thought, as Adorno claimed, of course, is only for the happy few who happen to attend a university. So I would definitely say that uh, Perry Anderson's critique was correct. On the other hand, you could also say, what would have been the alternative? I mean, the turn to theory didn't only happen in West Germany, right? It's it's something that, that, that for many of us is very familiar in these years, it was familiar in these years. Um, the working class was changing. Um, the working class was not interested to make a revolution, you know. The Social Democratic Party of West Germany became uh, uh, reformative instead of revolutionary. Um, and that's when the new left split from the traditional socialist party in Germany, at least, but it also happened in, in many other these European countries. Um, and what did they do? They marked their own radicalism by becoming radicals in theory, at least to a certain extent. So Perry Anderson, I think, is correct. On the other hand, uh, a new way, in a way, had to be found. So uh, that's a very, in the end, difficult question to answer. But I would definitely say that... Um, Theory and especially also uh, postmodern theory. Uh, the, the, we, could, we could refer to Luhmann, but we could refer much more commonly known to Derrida. I mean, his textual meditations of the eighties have something very la polar, right? Uh, uh, something very aesthetic, something very much of a pleasure itself to know all the references and to go in, to have these microscopic readings of classics to find out to make them collapse over their own uh, whatever wording and stuff i mean i mean that is something that is very far from any uh, uh, straight way to change or improve the conditions of our living together but on the other hand it expressed a deep concern about the conditions of this living together so we have to be fair. Uh, we can't retrospectively um, dismiss all this theoretical work. Because, of course, I mean, if we look into our contemporary world where I think theory does definitely not have the standing anymore, as I just said, it is very easily dismissed as something just for a few brainy guys who, in the end, nobody cares about, you know. Um, we have lost a great deal of this, let's say, speculative fantasy. And it also shows up in our political discussions. Uh, we don't have, we don't have uh, many visions of how the future could look. In a way, uh, that's now the, 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 the production of the future seems to be almost monopolistically held in the hands of Silicon Valley. Right. I mean, and, and, and perhaps even the subtlety of of discourse as has kind of been lost in this, you know, the the extreme polarization now and and, and simplification of positions, I suppose, might be related to that. Do you, do you do you agree with that or definitely? 
Definitely. Just the, just the, I mean, theory was also about imagining diff, different potential futures, right? And in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 90s, that happened already with French theory. Theory became more and more historicist. I mean, Foucault mainly writes about the past, right? He's an historian in a way. He tells a different story about a German, about a European enlightenment and, um, that speculative imagination has decreased. But, of course, we have one thing to say very clearly here. My book and the story of this publishing house, of course, is very, very Eurocentric. So the chronology of reading theory may be, for sure, in different parts of the world and maybe in Trinidad and Tobago is something completely different. That's that would be, of course, a question to you. I mean, we have the rise of postmodern of of, of uh, postcolonial theory in the nineties. Uh, you know, starting from these French authors, and that's something that doesn't. Uh, uh, that's that's a chapter that I would add to my book now. As I said, I I stop in the late eighties, early nineties. Just to interject, I mean, I I would say that so much of of postmodern and poststructural theory derives from people like Fanon and and um, and then even C L R James and so forth. So the, the, there was always this. Um, this this interaction. I mean, for for the French, for example, Algeria was such an important question in the whole colonial question, and and we had our our uh, critiques all you know all, all throughout you know the Caribbean and Africa and Asia and, and so forth. So so there, there I, I, I think there are a lot of these connections that are not Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, no, that that's very interesting, and and and. As some of myself right now, who is you know, uh, um, I guess highly critical of of you know of of the sort of you know solipsism in 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 a way, but at, at the same time, I mean, I lived through it and I was seduced by it, and 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 I totally get how how brilliant you know and wonderful that feeling was of you know. The aesthetics of it all, and and I understand the seduction, and what is so, and what was so great about it, and and what I definitely would not apologize for for enjoying. Absolutely you know. not. Yeah, and it wasn't only about enjoying. I mean, it was it was really, um, it was really a training, of course, in critique and in negativity, in in, in not affirming, um, uh, to what was happening anyway. Correct, because you know there is one point uh, in your conclusion in, in the book where, where you talk about how um, when basically so so much of this theory um, you know became normal normalized in in the university. I mean, when you and I suppose would have read it, it was subversive. It was actually very subversive. All the Marxist professors didn't like when, when you quoted these um, these people at the time, right? Um, now it, it's totally different. But but it was really dangerous when when um, when it, it first came out, wasn't it? Maybe you could uh, ex- um, get into that for some of the listeners. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, I guess I'm I'm a bit too young uh, to um, to have experienced, let's say, the the real um, hardcore debates within university. But still, in the '90s, when we were reading Foucault uh, um, uh, from 
two sides. On one hand, there were the more conservative historians who said uh, the guy is just uh, not to be taken seriously. And on the other hand, there were the more traditional Marxists who thought he was the devil, basically, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, just, uh, um, just a reactionary a, a, a traitor. Yeah, a reactionary, which for us was totally not even... I couldn't even understand what should have been reactionary about Foucault. Um, um, as, as, as Habermas said, for example, uh, the, 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 the German um, philosopher uh, who I happened to talk to a few years ago, he's now 93, and, and he's still, he's still uh, publishing articles about the war in Ukraine. But that's a different story. Um, so theory was really uh, surrounded by an aura of a certain danger. Dangerous thought, uh, this Nietzschean idea, was very important for the, the publishers that I wrote my book about. Uh, and that was part of the self-understanding of theory. And of course, we have to wonder about respectively the idea that reading certain texts alone was a subversive act. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Um, um, yeah, and I suppose, well, I suppose you being in that, I'm, I'm so fascinated. I, I don't have a personal experience with it, but, you know, I'm, I'm supposing you were in West Berlin uh, at the time yourself. Uh, I came to West Berlin in the second half of the 90s, yeah. Mm. But okay. I, was, I was in the early 90s, I was in Italy, in Bologna, studying there, and that was even my, almost more formative. Uh, the, Italy has always been a very rich um, uh, 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 country for these theoretical debates, just because post-war Italy was so deeply into Marxism, so they were really, they had the biggest communist party after the war and also the most intellectual communist party yeah, after Gramsci the war. Was, the Gram yeah. Gramsci, exactly. Yeah. Uh, in a way, one of the, the, the fathers of Western Marxism. That's right, a, a kind of honorary, um, <laughs> an honorary member in a sense. I mean, of course, and why did, why, why did just, just a little excursion here, when did Gramsci, let's say, become a Western Marxist? When he was in jail. He couldn't participate in the political struggle anymore because Mussolini had thrown him into the jail in, in jail into the late 20s. And then he wrote and he became a theoretician. For, like he, he moved from uh, political struggle into reading and thinking and writing. And that's so, let's say, one of the uh, 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 original scenes of this birth of, uh, uh, um, of, 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 of Western Marxism. Anyway, um, 
Italy was also later, just because uh, the Italian intellectuals, the Italian left, was so used to, you know, reading difficult texts that they were also very strong in, in, in the reception of French theory. They had their own branch of postmodernism, uh, as you know, and also, for example, this the systems theory, Luhmann, was also very, very uh, well received in Italy. So yes, I definitely had uh, in different parts of, of Europe, uh, I had these very strong experiences of reading theory, also in Berlin in the late 90s, definitely. Wow. In, in your book, you, you say that the purpose of it is to connect the analysis of what we think with the analysis of what happens. Can you, can you just explain that a little more? Yeah, I talked about that already a little bit before and um, I was not interested in theory as just a succession of thought you know this like textbook rep recapitulation of what Adorno said and what Foucault said but I was interested in the experience um, of these theories for a generation of readers or at least for two generations of readers exactly what you just talked about your own uh, becoming seduced by these kind of texts, and in the end, the simple question is that the book uh, is, is 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 rising. How could that happen? Right, why did right. it happen, and what did it mean? And could you explain the significance of the title, "The Summer of Theory"? And and I notice in German, I believe it's "The Long Summer of Theory," right? And so I, I don't know why that was taken out in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that that's a very short answer. Um, the title in German refers to a once famous book by a German uh, poet, maybe one, maybe yeah, one of the most important post-war poets and also essayists in West Germany, Hans Magnus Enzensberger. I don't know if you've ever heard about him. Um, Enzensberger, and he wrote a book. He was himself a part of the 68th generation, an ardent leftist, uh, uh, and he wrote a book about the Spanish uh, anarchists in the early 20th century, and it's called um, The Short Summer of Anarchy. And um, I was playing with that title, which for German readers is very familiar, because, I mean, Anselzberger's book, just he wrote about this short move, moment in Spain at the beginning of the Civil War when it seemed to be possible to that the anarchists might take over, you know. We um, had in Spain, they had this strong anarchist as opposed to Marxist uh, tradition in the workers' movement. Um, on the other hand, uh, the theory, um, uh, the experience of reading theory was stretched over several decades. So that was that's why I called it the long summer of theory as, as opposed to the short summer of theory. In English, uh, this reference just was not familiar to the reader, so we thought we could make the title a bit more, maybe a bit more neat, a bit more tight if we just leave it out. Um, and then somebody told me that we missed another opportunity for a title reference. There is this surfer film, uh, it's called Endless Summer, um, which seems to be like a classic, for at least for an American audience. I think it's The Endless Summer, it's called. Um, from 1966 uh, about like uh, California surface, apparently a cultural reference. So we, of course, we could call it the endless summer of theory. That maybe would have been a good uh, a good idea. But on the on the on the other end, it's also wrong because part of the book, of course, is also to say the summer wasn't endless. Now we are 
after a theory in a certain way, and that's the title of the last chapter. And then it's about the German left too. So, yeah. So it it it's it, it's. I, well, I'm 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 glad to to get that um, little education there. <laughs> Right now, you and and I was wondering, you know, you start your book with an anecdote about Andreas Bader and um, of of the the, the famous um, Red Army faction or infamous Red Army faction. Um, Can you tell our listeners about that and and what makes that anecdote so significant? I was trying to figure out, you know, uh, are you uh, is he sort of representing for you a time perhaps before theory or or I'm not sure. Could could you um, just I guess tell the anecdote and, and then yeah. maybe explain the significance. The anecdote is simple. Uh, Andreas Bader, who was the head, in a way, of the Red Army fraction um, in Germany in the 70s, he uh, died in, in, in 77, as is maybe generally known, along with his fellow terrorists, uh, Ulrike Meinhof uh, and Gudrun Enslin. They all uh, uh, killed themselves in in jail in seventy seven. Uh, uh, it's also known in Germany as the German Autumn, uh, like definitely a low point, a rock bottom for the post war German left. Uh, there were long rumors that they had been killed by the authorities, which I think are simply wrong. They killed themselves, and um, the terrorists. The interesting thing is uh, Andreas Bader, who was really, uh, there are also several films about him. He was, in a way, the type of, let's call him like a gangster terrorist. You know, he had, he was into fast cars and big guns, and he had this glamour around him um, uh, th- that many, uh, uh, let's say, insurgents have had over the centuries. Andreas Bader was definitely one of them, but he was this kind of uh, uh, glamorous gangster who turned his um, his energies into, into into the political fight. He could have also, in a different time, maybe turned into a bank robber, uh, which he also was, but of course for as part of his political struggle. The interesting thing is this guy, who by nature was never a reader, he didn't even attend a university, who was not connected to the intellectual German New Left, at the time, he really came from the streets. Let's say when he died in seventy-seven in his cell, there were hundreds of theory books, and uh, that's also now retrospectively can be reconstructed. How in jail, Andreas Bader turned into a reader, and he suddenly became fascinated with theory and thought he needed to catch up with something that he missed out before. You know, other revolutionaries in jail, maybe they, they would have written the novel of their life, their autobiography, or they, they would have started to, to paint or something, you know, but Ada started to read these difficult texts from Marx to Adorno to uh, to to, uh, to Hegel, of course. I guess he wasn't into French theory yet. Had he lived longer, I'm sure he would have. Um, but, so, for that matter, and the thing is, for the Red Army fraction, the other terrorists, they were much more into the intellectual discourse of the time. Ulrike Meinhof was kind of the mastermind. She was authoring their communiques and their manifestos. And if you read these manifestos from the 70s, it becomes clear that the reference to theory is central to this kind of 
terrorist opposition. Um, and I just find that very telling of the time that even these very crude acts of political violence that uh, the Red Army fraction uh, committed, um, they had to take the reference to theory to legitimize, and, and they also believed in theory and the fact that even Bada, the gangster terrorist type, turned into an excessive reader in jail. Uh, I just find him a symbol of a generation, maybe you could say. That's why I start with this anecdote. Right, right, right. And 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 there, just um, you know, out of curiosity, the 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 theory that they gravitated. To what what would it be? I I'm you know I I don't think it would be like a revolution. I I I would imagine it probably started out maybe like revolutionary syndicalists like you know George Sorrell or the, or the anarchists themselves perhaps and yeah and, but uh, they were also studying Marx. They were right. all studying Marx uh, in German, German universities and but also in 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 the more radical uh, leftist circles, uh, even in the Red, Red Army fraction surroundings, they all founded these Marxist study groups, you know, they would go through the capital of Marx uh, with four different uh, colors of underlining. Uh, and it was really, it, it, it was really uh, like, like, like studying texts in a monastery. I mean, you have to. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm thinking about like Perry Anderson's critique might be confounded in this example, in, in the sense that if if you're saying that they they started to to um, be interested in some of the post structuralists and 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 so forth, um, that that'll be interesting uh, to to know what they gravitated or I don't know would it be the nihilism of Foucault or something? I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I guess. I mean the. From the from the Marxist standpoint, the post-structuralists uh, um, Foucault and also Deleuze, Gattari, of course, were in the end they 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 were regarded to be anarchists, right? In the end, like this wild uh, setting free free of individual uh, um, energies that you find maybe. Yeah, and where individual and, desires are central. Sorry, and well, maybe we're talking here mostly about Deleuze Gattari, which were very, very central also for this publishing house that I was talking about. I mean, maybe their Bible in the 70s was uh, this introduction, I think, to Mille Plateau, which is called Rizom. Rizom. I don't know if you ever uh, happen to read it. It's it's one of these iconic texts, a short text of Deleuze Gattari. And it's really cryptic, but it definitely is a celebration of these uh, energies, wild flows of desire that should be somehow liberated. Um, so, no, I'm not saying that the, that the Red Army Fraction terrorists, they were, I mean, he was also, all the leftist publishers were sending books to them in, the, in jail. Also, Malva sent, of course, they were definitely sympathizers for a long time. They were also sending their, their books, so they definitely had these uh, Deleuze Gattari books at hand. But the thing is, Rizom only came out in seventy-seven, and um, so and that's also seventy-seven. At least in the West German experience, is really the breaking point, uh, the rock bottom, the low point, the, the the deaths of the Red Army fraction. Then you have the kidnapping 
of the German uh, plane um, to free um, by Palestinian and German leftist theories in order to free the terrorists in Germany um, and the catastrophe to which it amounted. That's, in a way, the rock bottom. And after that, the German left is really in despair. And then they start to read the French authors. Somehow they open. And, I mean, the French authors are also, in a way, disappointed ex-Marxists, right? Uh, Foucault was in the party, and they all have their... They had in France their Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn uh, um, experience. Um, and in Germany, all of this happened a bit later. Uh, um, the, the French had uh, already much earlier began to think in terms of difference, maybe also due to, to the experience, as you said, of the Algerian decolonization and things like that. But after 77, uh, the, also the German left uh, moves heavily into post-structuralist and post-modern theories, also out of despair and disappointment. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I think um, you you did sort of touch on, uh, about this um, idea of after theory. That, that's how you title the, the epilogue of your book, After Theory, with a question mark. Um, do, you, do you want to uh, just, I, I think that, that probably is a nice way to, um, you know, re- reflect on, on the story of your book. So what, what do you mean by after theory and, and, and what are its implications? Yeah, I mean, um, after theory uh, w- w- with a question mark, it's important. Um, of course, raises the question: uh, What happened to uh, this seduction that theory uh, that 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 came along with theory? What happened to our belief, and what happened to the self-evidence of theory? To this idea that reading theory is, you know, like an essential part of an intellectual formation and reading theory is in itself a subversive act um, that uh, can liberate uh, individual energies, can transform social structures. I think um, the 90s were on the one hand like the big blooming of postmodern theory, postmodernism, this very playful way also of reading theory. On the other hand, of course, they were all also the beginning of the end of this whole discourse, I think. Uh, I mean, with the end of the communist world, uh, we entered into something that Mark Fisher, the the English uh, cultural theorist and pop cultural theorist, has, has called uh, capitalist realism, right, in the, in the 90s. So, in a way, the social and economic system that we live in suddenly became much more inevitable. There is no existing alternative to it. And, of course, just the fact, even if it was visible in the 80s by far, that the Eastern Bloc just didn't work out very well, also not for the people uh, who had to live there, just the fact that it was a whole world that was run differently politically, of course, opened possibilities of speculative thinking so and also other of course also other uh, many other factors since the 90s um 
um, are responsible for the decline of the belief and theory and of the belief of, 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 of uh, theoretical discourse, um, which brings us to a current situation which is in a way very poor when it comes to I called it before speculative fantasy, right? Different ways to imagine the future, uh, different ways to explain how our society works. I mean, of course, all of this still continues, but it doesn't have the significance anymore that it used to have. And something that I think also is maybe connected to the decline of theory is the rise of conspiracy theories, on the other hand, that we observe... Uh, have been observing in the last years, you know, if you think of QAnon or whatever they call QAnon, if we think about the, the whole COVID uh, uh, crisis, and at least in Germany, how it contributed to the surge of conspira conspirational theories, um, I have to think about the fact that maybe these conspirational the conspiracy theories in a way also have taken the place of social and critical theory, because of course there are certain similarities between critical theory and conspiracy theory, because they both claim that there is a reality which is hidden, which lies behind the stuff that we see with our common sense, right? You can find that very yeah. clearly in Adorno and Marcus. That is systemic. Mm -hmm. It's systemic. There, there are hidden forces. I mean, that's the whole core idea of Marxism. Also, there, there are hidden forces that you can't see. That you need, you need a certain, um, you need to study. You need to go into depth to find out what's really happening. And that's, of course, a similarity. On the other hand, the dissimilarity is that uh, social theory and critical theory offered functional, structural systemic explanations of what was going on, whereas conspiracy theories mostly are just concerned about alternative facts, right? They, they totally, in the end, work with, 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 with facts. They just have different facts, you know? Be it, I don't know, a tunnel under a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., or... Uh, and, and, and I guess they, they point to, to persons they point as to opposed persons. to systems. Exactly. Yeah. They don't point to the anonymous forces of history or capital or whatever. So that's a huge difference. It's a huge difference whether uh, you claim, you, 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 uh, you, you blame the, the productive forces or the elders of Zion, right? Uh, um, for what's going on, and and maybe the decline in theory has also contributed to the to the surge of conspirational theory, where all this speculative fantasy, in a way, goes into uh, in our current time. Right, right. Now, um, I, I guess um, one of the the questions I'd like to ask, too, out of interest, since this is a translation, and that you you. It was originally published in 2015, and I imagine you know you worked on it for a long time before that. Um, do you think that do you see any need for or for changes or refinements, or, or perhaps you know have you read the English translation, and and do you think that something were difficult or maybe not translated exactly how in the best way you, you would have liked perhaps? Well, generally, I was very happy with the English translation. I I couldn't. I I have to admit, I couldn't in the end study it word for word um, so maybe there are a very few points where 
things are not completely clear or completely uh, 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 as they were meant to be. But generally, I think it's a very good translation. Um, and I think the translation was even shortlisted for like a translation or price in uh, which, uh, which, which, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, of course, I would now, if if I would, let's say, publish a new edition, which I won't. <laughs> I mean, I, um, somehow I, I. Okay, we're all moving on, right? It's it's also hard. To, you you have to do new things. But if if I would. Write a completely revised edition. I would include the nineties. I would include, um, of course, the the, the rise of of um, post colonial theory, of gender theory, of all these identity debates that we suddenly have since the nineties, and, and that also somehow, of course, go along with the globalization of theory which I look at from a very West German which also means of course from a, from a very Eurocentric point of view but that would really be in a way a second book uh, highly fascinating though uh, and then we have to say also maybe Merve Publishing House wouldn't be the right uh, subject because they did not so heavily moved into, uh, move into uh, post-colonial theory or gender theory for example they, were, they really had their heyday until the late 80s and um, so perhaps it is perfectly encapsulated <laughs> you know what i mean because as you say it would have to be a different book after, also with so. the fall of the wall with the end of this in a way island of happiness that was west berlin for these or a certain bohemia because you had very low rents it was very easy to live here you know there were many partisans many peers in the city uh since the 60s all of this ended and i think um the my protagonists i think i mean they lived she lived into the late 90s i think and he lived into maybe 10 years more they were both dead by now i think they never set foot in former east berlin they really didn't like uh, the you know unified berlin they didn't like the reunified uh, germany like many west german leftist intellectuals so their heyday in a way was a was over. Um, Could you explain that to me? Uh, as an outsider, I'm fascinated. Um, what didn't they like about it? Um, just because West Berlin was a protected island, you didn't have the cold blow of the market forces in that city. You had, you know, very protected rents. Anyway, there was not so much economic activity going on, so it was a heaven for all kinds of bohemias. You know, had very low rents. They all lived in these huge uh, uh, turn of the centuries flat, and they could rent cheap office space. and And also, there was just this very liberal atmosphere in the city. No wonder that David Bowie loved to be here in the seventies. I mean, all of that also happened in the nineties with the with the techno movement, with the new light life, but. It became much harder uh, uh, to uh, to make a living here. Uh, suddenly, events surged in the nineties. Uh, they really went up before they went down again, um, and suddenly Berlin was okay. Also, became internationalized. Suddenly, different forces were acting in in the city. And of course, uh, the the unification, German unification, is a whole different story. I mean, 
many of these leftists were definitely post-national thinkers. They didn't believe in, in, in the idea of national unification, you know, and so uh, there was uh, there was a very critical stance towards that. All right, and and finally, as as we close off, uh, are you working on any on any projects right now that you'd like your uh, that you'd like our audience to know about? Yeah, I just I just published another book. It's, it's it just came out in German, um, and in a way, it tells an opposite story. It's although it's also very connected. Um, it tells. Uh, it's it's called uh, how Nietzsche came out of the cold. No, how Nietzsche came in from the cold. It's it's uh, like playing with the uh, the famous title of John Le Carre's uh, thriller. Uh, this how is it called? The spy who came in from the cold or something. And um, it's it just tells the fascinating story of Nietzsche's denazification and his rediscovery after the war. Because as as is well known, he was. Uh, he was considered to be a fascist philosopher after the war. I mean, Mussolini gave Hitler, no, Hitler gave Mussolini to his 60th birthday in 1943, uh, uh, the collected works of Nietzsche, you know, in blue, in blue leather, uh, bound in blue leather. And, and, and that's just a symbol for the fact that, of course, he had been exploited and read by the different fascist movements. So Nietzsche was in a way uh, 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 down and out and his papers, his remains, because two-thirds of his work was not published when he became crazy in 1890. His remains happened to be in the GDR in eastern Germany, in Weimar. So the book tells the story of two Italian communists, Colli and Montinari, who traveled to the GDR to reread and republish Nietzsche's complete works and by doing that, they somehow managed to bring him back into play. And then he was picked up by the French, and then he became one of the godfathers of postmodernism. But I'm telling this philological story that's behind it by these two uh, uh, Italian communists who settled in the GDR to spend 10 years of deciphering the scribblings of Nietzsche. And by doing that, they opened the path to postmodernism. But they were not into theory, they were in philology, in textual scrutiny, and they had the belief that it was possible to, let's say, recover the original version of Nietzsche, which, of course, uh, was an idea that the postmodernists later completely uh, rejected. So that's the story that I told in this new book. And it's, I mean, about the same period, but it's it, it, it has very different... Uh, in the end, a very different outlook. It's in the, it plays, it's situated between Italy and East Germany in the, in the, in, in the, in the, in the area of the communist parties. And it's not about theory, but, but about philology and in a way, almost religious belief in the truth of written text. Oh, that sounds fascinating. That sounds really fascinating. We'll talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad I can't read German. But uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and perhaps we can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been really informative and enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. So once again, the book is The Summer of Theory, 
History of a Rebellion, 1960 to 1990. And we've been speaking to the author, Philip Felsch. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Kirk. And also thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.